Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 14 and 15, continuing, really taking on the second part of the sermon from last week, um, and the sixth part in this series on just the incarnation of the Son. If you weren't here for last week's sermon, I really encourage you to listen to it. It will give you some context for what we're also doing today. Hopefully today you'll be able to follow without last week's sermon, but um, I would really encourage you to hear last week as well. Look with me at Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Let me pray. Father, we ask, as we consider this, your word, superintended by your spirit, as he carried men along as they wrote, for the sake of your church, not only here, but in all generations, we ask that you would give us ears to hear what the spirit says to the church. Father, that you would cause us to understand the reality that we have been, through fear of death, subject to lifelong slavery. What that means and what it means, even more importantly, that your son and his incarnation and his life and death and resurrection has freed us from lifelong slavery to the fear of death. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you know this. Many of you probably know this. But my father was a Bakersfield police officer who on June 20th, 1980, was killed in the line of duty. Um, I was six years old. It was just nine days before my seventh birthday. I remember it quite well because that Christmas... He had given me a fishing pole, and it said, when your birthday comes around this year, which was June 29th, I'll take you fishing. It was going to be our first fishing trip with my dad and I, and and I looked forward to it for six months. I woke up that morning early, hearing my mom crying and seeing my house full of police officers, and being told that my father had been killed that night. At the time, I asked um, the question that the six-year-old might ask, does this mean we're not going fishing? I, I remember well that night because I didn't understand what was happening. I could not comprehend at that moment the finality of my dad's death. I still can't comprehend the finality of my dad's death. Obviously, it caused me sorrow, but it it was not a momentary sorrow. It was the ongoing presence of loss. My dad didn't dissolve away into nothingness. There was a way in which he remained continually through my childhood. Now, how did he remain? As a continually 
present absence and loss. I would dream about him as a child. I would have dreams at night that he wasn't really killed, that he was just undercover and it was all a sham and he was coming home. I I wondered at the fact that I could not go anywhere in the world and find him, for he was nowhere to be found. I felt the continual presence of his absence acutely. He still remains in my life by the presence of his absence. When people die, please hear this, when people die, they do not dissolve into nothingness as if they were not. They remain as a continually present absence and loss. Why is this? Because in the deepest sense, death is not the way it's supposed to be. We know we were created for immortality, and yet we also recognize the relentless truth that the moment is coming when our souls will separate from our bodies and we will die. And that this truth really creates great fear in us. It enslaves us in a variety of ways. The continual presence of my dad's absence caused me to lie in bed at night and wondered and wonder if I will close my eyes and dissolve into oblivion with regard to this world. I, I remember when I was approaching 35 years old, the, the age at which my dad was killed, and I struggled at night with, um, is this going to be my end as well? This truth creates great fear in us, and it enslaves us. For me, it wanted me to live, caused me to want to live a meaningful life and even attempt to find a way to immortalize myself in this life. I sought any number of ways to overcome what will eventually be for my wife and kids the presence of my absence. As a parent, this fear grows even more, does it not? Not only for yourself, but for those whom you love. This grows. Dr. Carl Truman pointed out that we have a vocabulary for children who lose their parents. We call them orphans. And we have a vocabulary for those who lose a spouse. We call them a widow or a widower. But we have no vocabulary for a parent who loses a child. Now, Truman wonders aloud whether this is because the singular horror of that thought is just unspeakable to us. Either way, my point is that the fear of death, whether for us or for our loved ones, enslaves us. It causes an existential crisis for us. But there is good news. There is good news. The Son of God has come as a man to put death to death through his own sacrifice on the cross and to deliver all those who through the fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. And thus my hope this morning is to really look at those two points. 
First, that our lifelong slavery comes from the fear of death. And second, that our deliverance from that lifelong slavery comes by the incarnate Son. So I want to look at that first point. Our lifelong slavery that comes from the fear of death. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. We'll read through verse 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What does lifelong slavery driven by the fear of death look like? What is it about the fear of death that enslaves us? Well, let me um, take a moment, keep your hand in Hebrews 2, and look back at Genesis 3. Because as I said last week, this text continues to drive us back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And so it's important that we look there two different times this morning, once in this point and once in my second point. Look at Genesis chapter 3. As you know, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created man on the sixth day. Male and female, he created them. He created Adam and Eve. And as you know, Adam and Eve were given commands by God that they did not keep. They did not obey, and they fell into sin. Where I want to pick up is the scene right after they eat the fruit, verse 7. Genesis 3, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now, just so you know, in Genesis 2.24, it already tells us they knew they were naked, and they were not ashamed. The emphasis here is, now they know they're naked in a whole different way. There's shame attached to it. There's guilt attached to it. They knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They're, they're attempting to cover their guilt and their shame. Now look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now the Lord has been nothing but good to them. Nothing but good. But he told them, do not eat of the fruit of the garden, of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so as the Lord comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day... And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. See, they hide in fear in the garden because they're naked, they're guilty. They're ashamed. They know they deserve death. They know they deserve the judgment of God. And so when they hear him coming, they hide. They feared the judgment of the Lord. We fear not only, I want you to hear this, we fear not only the physical death, which comes for judgment for sin, but we fear the second death of God's eternal judgment for sin. Look at Romans 1.32. Keep, again, keep your hand in Hebrews 2 and look at Romans 
chapter 1. If you're not familiar with the New Testament, it's in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans chapter 1. If you've gotten to 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you've gone too far. Romans chapter 1 and verse 32. As Paul lays out that the wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness have suppressed the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them. But they've exchanged, in summary, the truth about God for a lie. And they've rushed off into all kinds of sin. They've been turned over to their own wickedness. Now look what verse 32 says. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Isn't that true? When we're in sin, we love to rope other people into it with us. Love to approve them to sin with us. We know that sin rightly brings judgment. Death. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Again, keep your hand in Hebrews 2. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. That's what we know. We know that death comes as judgment for sin, and we know that it's been appointed unto us once to die, and then the judgment for our sin. And we're afraid. Let let me summarize what we know in two simple truths. First, we know that death is not the way it should be. Yet, we also recognize that the grave is coming for us all. And second, we know we are sinners who deserve to die, and after that, the judgment. We know these things. We know this, though we may seek to suppress this truth and unrighteousness. At our clearest moments, which generally come as we're standing over the coffin of a loved one, Incidentally, just as a side, it's why I prefer to do funerals over weddings. Don't get me wrong, I'm not morose. I love weddings. But it's at the funeral where everyone is clear-headed about life. It's at that place that we know this this will be our end as well. Death is the great democratizing truth for us all. No matter how great, how wealthy, how powerful, or how happy this man's life seemed, his end is the grave. Blaise Pascal recognized this. He said, however happy the rest of the play may have been, the last act is tragic as a little dirt is thrown upon our head. Did you hear that? What is your last act? A little dirt will be thrown upon your head. And it ends. 
Carl Truman reminded me of this in a message he gave on the topic of death at King's College. If you, if you want to go on YouTube and look it up, he gave a message on the topic of death at King's College. Carl Truman, you just look it up. It's absolutely profound. It's brilliant. I encourage you to take time to watch it. Truman talks about a few ways that we cope with our lifelong slavery brought about by the fear of death. So I want to look at those three ways just for a minute. He says first that we try to deny death. We try to deny it. That's the first way we try to cope with our lifelong slavery. We try to deny it, to distract ourselves from it, to avoid the thought of it. Truman pointed out that we used to walk past cemeteries whenever we walked into the church because the church grounds had a cemetery. And we knew when we walked into the church building that we were there to learn about what to do about the problem we just saw walking in the door. But now we move cemeteries as far away as we can and as out of sight as we can. We've pursued distraction as the entertainment generation. We endlessly entertain ourselves to avoid thinking about all those fears and anxieties that correlate to death. This is probably why some of you can't go to sleep without watching TV to fall asleep. Because you're fearful of what happens in your mind in the silence. You have a kind of unquiet mind as you lay there in the quiet. We seek for meaning and entertainment because boredom and the quiet are intolerable propositions for those who face oblivion. We seek for meaning and entertainment for that end. Truman points out that's why Kim Kardashian gets paid more than the President of the United States, because she does more to distract us than he does. That's why professional athletes get paid more than teachers. Because they do more to distract us than the teacher does. They provide a greater service to a culture in fear of lifelong slavery because we're afraid of death. It's a perverse kind of distraction, though. But we'll shell out every dollar we have for it. We particularly see this raise its ugly head in pornography, don't we? Pornography, which we can now stream to our devices, frighteningly enough, there's no longer the shame of walking into some perverse building that you would never want your neighbor to see you walking into. Now you can just stream it to the privacy of your own hand as you hold a phone. That pornography is driven after, I think, we pursue it like we do because of a fear of death. When someone looks at pornography, they don't stay on a stale image. They're nearly always consuming as many images as they possibly can to keep themselves distracted. Why is that? Because at the core we're likely distracting ourselves from the fear of death. And sex is perhaps the most powerful stimulant to distract ourselves from the fear of death, for sex as its purpose is life-giving. It reproduces. 
It's a particularly powerful distraction. For nothing makes us more alive than sex. As its purpose is to create life. I asked Truman if he thinks this is a similar phenomenon that we see in social media and selfies. He said he, stays, he actually stays off social media altogether because he finds it to be an incredibly dangerous sort of media. He says it's a way to pursue endless distraction by streaming through, a, through images and comments. We, we post pictures of ourselves seeking some meaning by posting unsolicited images waiting for folks to like and comment on them. How perverse is that? And we never stop to contemplate our lives and our ignoble end. We just distract. Distract. Second, he says that we try to defy death. We try to overcome it, to find ways around it. You, you know what this looks like. When we're young, we just tend to embrace our own invincibility. It's just not coming for me. We just deny it's coming for us. We even, we even hate the term. We don't say anymore, so-and-so died. We say, they passed away. Because we're just uncomfortable saying, someone died. I, I made the comment a couple weeks ago that death used to feel like it was in China for me, but now it feels like it's gotten a taft, right? It just comes in quicker, right? And after I said that, Randy Prine, who's a much older man than me, no, <laughs> Randy came up to me and said, hey, I feel like death's in a van outside my window peeking in. <laughs> we can see our avoidance of death so clearly throughout human history in our pursuit of the fountain of youth. We pursue that same fountain via any number of means, whether it's plastic surgery, attempting to dress like we're an adolescent, even though you're a grown man. Pursuing perpetual adolescence. Movies like Animal House, which is wildly inappropriate, I don't recommend anybody watch it, but movies like Animal House used to be about the antics of adolescent college students. Those same movies in our generation are made with 40 and 50-year-old men as the stars of it. We also attempt to defy death via the sexual revolution. If the telos of sex is reproduction in life, the purpose of it, and our culture attempts to defy death with its sexual promiscuity. That's how we do it. We claim sex is meaningless and that we can be engaged in it casually and without consequence. Yet, we also exalt sex to the highest level of importance as we're willing to toss out religious rights in exchange for sexual freedom. We treat sex like a casual activity to be used with whomever, yet we are also in the Me Too movement in which sexual violation is the unforgivable sin. Why is this? Because we know that the trivialization of sex is a lie. We know it. We, cannot, we can try to pretend it's not, but we know it's a lie. 
Sin, like I said last week, makes us insane. So that we say two opposite things at the same time. Breathlessly, without even flinching. Sex is casual and meaningless. Have it with whomever you please. If that person touches me and I don't like it, it's the ultimate violation. Is it important or is it unimportant? We know it's important, and yet we lie. Because sin makes us insane. The fact is that death is encroaching, and we look for ways to defy death. Last Truman says that we try to control death. So we distract ourselves, we defy it, and we try to control it. He says that we try to assert sovereignty over death. How so? Well, let me give you two ways. First, suicide. Suicide is ultimately a way to make the pain stop. I'm suffering because of the fall and sin in some way. I want the pain to stop. And this pain at its deepest level comes from the lifelong slavery brought by the fear of death. And I may not be able to stop this tyrant of death, but I can attempt to exercise sovereignty over him. Euthanasia and abortion is the other way. I see someone suffering, someone experiencing experiencing the consequences of the fall, of sin, and I seek to play God in their life. Whether suicide, abortion, or euthanasia, we are attempting to assert sovereignty over the one foe we know we cannot conquer. And we do so by controlling the timing of the death of ourselves or another. This is ultimately what is happening in our culture of death. We're a country that is increasingly enshrining in law the murder of our young, while also pursuing the right to murder our elderly and terminally ill. We're also a country who's so drug-addicted and suicidal that the average age at which American, uh, Americans' lifespan is, is, has dropped for the third year in a row. Now hear this. There's been a couple times in American history where the average lifespan of American has gone down. Those occasions have been as a result of some kind of pandemic illness. However, in our time, the last three years, the average lifespan as an American has reduced as a result of suicide and drug overdose. In a time of unprecedented financial prosperity, medical progress, leisurely lifestyles, entertainment, access to therapy, and unfettered sexual expression, we are literally in that moment committing suicide as a culture. We live at these extreme and insane poles. We attempt to defy and distract ourselves from death. We are even so afraid to give death its day, we don't even have funerals anymore. We have celebrations of life. We can't bring ourselves to admit that death has had its day, so we pretend as if it hasn't. 
And as we gather to say, and we gather together to say all the stuff we should have said to that person while they're still alive. Listen, I'm just going to tell you my preference. If you're going to have a celebration of life for me, have it while I'm alive. I'd prefer to hear that. Right? I'd like to know. When I die, have a funeral. Here's my point. We live in a culture of death in which we celebrate the right to kill the unborn and the terminally ill while simultaneously we're so afraid of death that we do everything in our power to deny and defy and control it. That's why I had Jason read from Ecclesiastes this morning. It resonates for we all know that our pursuits, whether for wealth or power or fame or comfort or respect are ultimately vanity, a chasing after the wind, because death is coming for us all. Now, if I only had that point to make this morning, it would be an incredibly discouraging day. (laughs) But I do have a second point that I want to make, a much more hopeful point, which is this. Second point is this, the incarnate Son has delivered us from this lifelong slavery brought about by the fear of death. He's delivered us. Look back at Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. I won't spend much time in verse 14 as I addressed it last week. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, in other words, the children that God has given to the Son, since we have flesh and blood, since we're human, He Himself likewise partook of the same things. He became a man. That through death, through his death on the cross, through his propitiatory sacrifice, where he absorbs the wrath of God and satisfies the wrath of God on our behalf, through his death on the cross, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. The reason the devil has the power of death is because the devil is the one who tempted us to sin at the beginning. Death is the consequence of sin. Who tempted us to sin? Satan. And inasmuch as he remains the tempter and the father of lies, he has the power of death as he tempts us to sin. And the wages of sin are death. But notice what else the son has done. He destroyed death and the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And verse 15, and he delivered, he has delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The Son of God became a man to destroy Satan, sin, and death. Now again, I said we're going to come back to Genesis 3, so look back there at Genesis 3. I pointed this passage out to you last week, and I'm going to point it out to you again this week. Genesis chapter 3. And look at verse 14 as the Lord begins to curse Satan and mankind for sin. The Lord God comes to Satan first. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I I emphasized this last week. I'll say it again. This is not when serpents lost their legs. It's not the point. Okay? 
by being on his belly eating dust, the idea is, is that is, he's been conquered. He's being conquered as a defeated foe. Now look what it goes on to say in verse 15. I will put enmity between you, that's Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring, those who follow his lies, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. His his heel is going to crush the head of Satan. He's getting at The seed of the woman who's going to come is going to crush the serpent. Now he goes on and explains the curse. The man believes this promise. Adam believes the promise that a seed of the woman will come who will save them from Satan, who will be victorious over Satan, sin, and death. How do we know that? Look at verse 20 of chapter 3. The man called his wife's name Eve. Now, he had already named her in Genesis chapter 2. He named her Isha, which means woman. That's what he named her. Now he names her again. He changes her name to Eve. Why? Because she was the mother of all living. You follow what's happening here? She will give birth to the seed of the woman who will give life, who will save us from death. Now look what he goes on to say. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. He, he covered them with the blood sacrifice. We're getting, we're getting echoes of what's to come in redemption. You're not going to cover yourself with a fig leaf. I'm going to cover you. I'll provide the sacrifice. Now look at verse 24. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Kicked him out of the garden, out of God's presence, out of the glorious eternal life they would know from eating from the tree of life. And he put these cherubim there. It's a cherub on each side. Standing for God's holiness, righteousness, judgment. That's why they're also on the top of the Ten Commandments, which is in the Ark of the Covenant. On the top of the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, sit these cherubs, representing God's holiness and justice. He puts them there at the entrance of the garden with a what? A a flaming sword. In other words, anyone who tries to attempt to enter this garden, God's presence for eternal life, will have the sword fall on them. They'll experience his judgment because you're sinners, so you've been kept out. What's fascinating about that is that not only are these cherubs put on the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant where the Ten Commandments are, but these cherubs are stitched on the curtain of the Holy of Holies. You know there's a holy place in the temple, and then there's the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is kept, where God's Shekinah glory dwells, and the priest enters only once a year on the Day of Atonement, and these on that curtain is stitched two cherubs, one on each side, guarding the way into God's presence, where there is life and joy forevermore for those who are in him, but for those who are sinners, there is nothing but judgment and death. And the cherubs guard the way. And when we get to the crucifixion of Christ, and the sky goes black, and the earth quakes What tears in two? That curtain separating what? Those cherubs. 
as the flaming sword fell on Jesus in our place so that we can now walk into the presence of God where there is joy in life forevermore. Do you understand what that all points to? The seed of the woman came in Jesus Christ and conquered our greatest foe, Satan, sin, and death. Now, I pointed you to Hebrews 9.27 before. Look back at Hebrews 9 because I don't want to stop at 9.27. Let's look at 9.27 again. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He already dealt with sin at the cross, and he's appearing a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Thus, he has delivered us, who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You may still know that the grave is not a natural outcome and is, in a way, still your enemy. You may still know that the death of your loved ones is a horrifying grief. And yet, we do not fear our own death nor the death of our loved ones as unbelievers do. This means we do not need, Christian, we do not need to deny, distract, defy, and control death. We do not need to lay awake at night fearing what evil tomorrow may bring, what nothingness and oblivion death seems to hold for us. We do not need to fear what may come of our loved ones in Christ. We have hoped that death is a conquered foe. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, listen to what Paul says. I tell you, verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall, shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Judgment has been taken at the cross. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Resurrection is our possession. We will rise again. Your loved ones who die in Christ will rise again. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 is bracketed with comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another when? 
when the loved one has died in Christ, comfort one another. The resurrection is coming. You will see them again in the resurrection. We do not have to chase after the wind in a pursuit of some meaning that might make us immortal any longer. We have a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. Christ is our life, our resurrection, our reward. We need to set our minds on him, on things that above. If we hope to fight our tendency to return to slavery, we must focus on him. Listen to how Solomon puts it in Proverbs 3 and verse 21. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. We must live the whole of our lives focused on Christ, the wisdom of God. Meditating on his person and work. Meditating on his word. Renewing our minds with the truth found in the word so that we're not conformed to the pattern of this world. We must wake up each day and recognize that we have not received a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Our old man is dead. We are a new creation in Christ, living for that city and architect whose builder is God, with our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And as we lay our heads on our pillows at night and die the death of sleep, we must be mindful that our glorious hope is that we would awaken to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask that we would be a people who trust not in ourselves, our possessions, money, fame, princes. We trust in none of that. But we trust in your Son alone. The one who has defeated death. The one who has been victorious over Satan. The one who has delivered us. Those of us who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. That we would trust in him as our deliverer. That we would not flee to denial and distraction and trying to assert sovereignty over our lives, but that we would rest in your son, that we would pay close attention to the wisdom of God found in Jesus Christ. That we would set our minds on things above where Christ is, 
that our lives would be lived each day, that we would wake each morning looking forward to the return of him for whom we so eagerly await. That we would go to bed each night resting our heads and our minds knowing that the greatest outcome for us would be to awake to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.